Welcome to Sex Positive Families, where parents, caring adults, and advocates come to grow and learn about sexual health in a supportive community. I'm your host and the founder of SPF, Melissa Carnegie. Join me and special guests as we dive into the art of sex positive parenting. Together, we will shake the shame and trash the taboos to strengthen sexual health talks with the children in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey families, so since starting Sex Positive Families, one of the most requested topics parents and caring adults seek consultation on is safety. How can we raise sexually healthy children and keep them safe from harm? So because this is such an important piece of parenting in a sex positive way, I decided we should start here and give you some knowledge and strategies to approach this aspect more confidently. So on today's episode, I have Kristen Hambridge, who is a licensed clinical social worker and sex therapist working toward her board certification from AASECT. If you're on Instagram and follow sexual health content, then you may know her already as Sex Stuff with Kristen. Kristen is a blogger and contributing writer for a number of online magazines, as well as a YouTube vlogger covering a myriad of sexual health and sex positive topics. Alongside her professional passions, she is a parent of a three-year-old son, so she is living sex positive parenting every day. This episode has a wealth of safety tips and strategies for parents and caring adults, so let's get started. We are on today with Kristen Hambridge. Some of you may know her as Sex Stuff with Kristen. Kristen, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to to be on your podcast. This is awesome. Well, we are so excited to have you and we're excited to pick your brain because you do a lot for the community in terms of sexual health messages and, you know, really getting creative and um, as you coin at your shop, a little snarky with it. And so um, I'm excited to have you in this space. I've I've been a follower uh, for a while now and I love your content and I know that there are a lot of listeners who feel the same way. So, you know, you create blogs, you create vlogs on a range of sex positive and sexual health topics. Um, You're a licensed clinical social worker, but tell us about your journey to this work that you're doing now. So, as you said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and after a period of years working with uh, children, teens, adults, I felt like there was a big part of my work that was missing, and that was making sure that I was trained and had expertise in sex and sexuality and gender. felt like that's something that is so important that, unfortunately, not all higher education as far as social work and Mm -hmm. licensed mental health counseling and some doctoral programs, it's not a huge focus, Mm -hmm. and which is a problem and needs to be changed and I think that there's a lot going on that's moving in that direction Um, but I felt like that was an aspect of my studies that was missing and it was coming up so often in the work that I was doing in lots of different ways Um, so I decided to go back and um, work towards my board certification in sex therapy through the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists And so that's currently what I'm doing. I'm I'm very close to finally getting my certification, but I have all of my, all of the educational pieces done as far as the courses I need to take and things like that. And I'm just kind of finishing up on my um, supervision hours that are required with a uh, board certified sex therapy supervisor. 
So I'm doing that now. Um, And that's kind of the direction I've gone. Like I said, I've worked with so many different people from all, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, different demographics. And, you know, one thing I think that we absolutely have in common, even though there are lots of things we have in common, Mm -hmm. is sex and sexuality. That's kind of where where that brought me. So yeah, we, we have that common thread. Yet, mm-hmm. especially in America, you know, there there's such, you know, taboo and such shame and such, yes. you know, secrecy surrounding sex and sexual sexual health and sexuality, which then makes it challenging, certainly as a, a parent, you know, when you when you move into that role as a parent and you're trying to um, raise the next generation and educate, we often as parents did not get the fullest education and perspective and preparation for that. So you, aside from all of of that that you've worked for in terms of your career path, personally, you can relate in terms of parenting. Is that right? Yes. I have a three-year-old son. So I am kind of in the thick of a lot of this, right? Because three-year-olds are super curious. They ask a ton of questions. They want to know about their own body. They want to know about the bodies of other people who are important in their lives. And so while I have this educational training, I'm also, you know, like probably many of your listeners in these situations all the time Mm -hmm. with my son, who's, you know, asking a billion questions about everything. (laughs) And it's really been, it's, it's so fun. It, it can be exhausting, obviously, as I'm sure many of your yes. listeners can relate to. Right. But it's fun. You totally see the world in general in a different way through mm-hmm. the eyes of your kids. That's right. But absolutely, when it comes to sex and sexuality, because this starts, you know, it starts at birth, really. But mm-hmm. questions and education and all of those things start so, so young that, you know, like you said, many of us don't have a lot of the support or mm-hmm. education to f- always feel comfortable and always feel like we know what the answers should be or how to best direct our kids. And so that's why it's really great to have podcasts like these and social media and blogs and vlogs and all of that stuff because we can really create a supportive environment um, as parents for one another and help feel competent and feel good and feel like we, we kind of have a handle on something because parent parenting, you know, we often feel like we don't have a handle on much. Yeah. At least that I can speak for myself. Oh and yeah, say that it's I'm like I don't know what I'm doing. Yes, but. it's the total imposter, you know, syndrome. Yeah. We're, we're out there yeah. just the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, so one topic that's definitely really important, and especially as we talk about nurturing our younger children, <coughs> is around safety and around healthy boundaries. And so that's really what we're gonna explore in this episode. So one thing that that recently, and I, and I shared this in our Facebook group not too long ago, and it, it was kind of eye-opening for me, was that transition now from the concept of stranger danger to tricky people. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, so tricky people was coined by Patty Fitzgerald of Safely Ever After. The idea of tricky people is that strangers, you know, oftentimes the people who are potentially grooming Mm -hmm. or looking towards our kids in a way that is not appropriate are people that we know, 
right? Right. So according to RAIN, which is the Rape Abuse and Instant National Network, 93% of perpetrators were known to their victims, Mm. which is huge, right? Definitely. So when we were younger, the idea of strangers was sort of based out of this idea that if you're playing outside, someone you don't know, typically someone who is male identified, who is probably creepy looking, right? This right. whole like scary guy in idea. A, in a van with a, with a pet, they want a dog, they want you to pet. Yeah, yeah, like help me find my dog. And right. then like suddenly gone, right? This idea, we were sort of told that that's kind of how it happens and don't go with strangers, right? But like I said, oftentimes the people who are looking towards our kids in an inappropriate way are actually people they know. So the idea of tricky people is essentially that a tricky person can be any adult, right? Right. This is somebody who tries to engage in a child in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable or hurts them in some sort of way. And so when we talk to our kids about tricky people, it's sort of tricky people versus safe grownups, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, a safe grownup doesn't ask a kid for help right? Safe grownups ask other grownups for help. Kind of going back to the whole like, oh, can you help me with directions? Or can you come with me and do this, right? Like there are certain things that adults aren't going to ask kids for help for. So giving our kids a better understanding of what to look for that isn't appropriate or that isn't right. Right. So that's where that stems from. So on that thought, framing it as tricky people could be anyone how can parents really reconcile that you know and 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 not not be operating from a place of fear you know that every, every you know everyone anyone how can I leave, ever leave my child with someone else how can I establish you know trust and especially if and when there's a parent which there are many parents who have experienced unsafe scenarios in their upbringing whether they've been addressed, unaddressed, you know, or, or tended yeah. to, then, you know, how, how, how can, what are some, some tips or thoughts on that in terms of how parents can reconcile that? This topic can be extremely triggering, I think, for any parent, regardless mm-hmm. of our history of whether we have a, hit, a trauma history or not. Right. Um, and I think because of that, it's often a topic we tend to avoid, mm-hmm. right? Because it can bring up anxiety and fear. And when something is scary and uncomfortable, Sometimes our go-to is just kind of put it on the back burner and hope that everything goes okay because we're really uncomfortable about that. But I always tell parents and kids and teens, don't be scared, be prepared, right? It's a great little um, jingle sort of thing that makes so much sense, right? When we act out of preparation and we're being proactive, we respond so so much different than when we respond or react out of fear. Yes. So a big part of this is teaching your kids um, specific safety strategies. Like, what would you do if you got lost? Well, who is typically a safer person to go to? Mm. A safer person to go to might be a mom with kids versus someone who may be like an older male who doesn't have children, right? So these are, some of it I think is like assumptions on our part, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say that if you see a mom with with some kids at a store, she's probably safer to go to. So it's like that sort of thing. And talking to your kids about adults who might encourage them to break their safety rules, right? right? A safe, healthy adult isn't going to encourage a kid to do something that their parents said they shouldn't. That could be someone in a family, or that could be someone they have never met before. Another great strategy is a safety word. Mm 
which is actually something that my mom did with me when I was a kid. So it's definitely something that's been out there. Right. But if someone said, you know, goes to your kid's school and says, hey, your mom said I was supposed to pick you up today. This could be a family member. This could be anyone, right? Oh, mom said I'm supposed to pick you up today. And you know that that wasn't a discussion that you had with your mom. Mm -hmm. Well, that person should know the safety word, right? Your parent would tell them that. So it's different things that you can do, these like strategies that are all about preparation and being proactive and that aren't about scaring your kid either. We don't want these things to be scare tactics because we don't want kids to feel unsafe, right? I think the world is a really safe place in a lot of ways. And so we don't want to make kids feel like it's scary to be with their aunt and uncle or it's scary to, you know, go out on the playground with their friends. We just want them to be prepared in the off chance that something may happen. Right. And that, that puts the sense, that puts a sense of control mm-hmm. into, into their hands. Yep. So I like that. Definitely. Let's talk about touch. So how can we help our young children and young adults even understand the difference between safe and unsafe touch? Sure. So we think about, you know, I I like to put it also in terms of comfortable versus uncomfortable touch or icky touch. You know, you can use words that your kid understands. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is going to be dependent on like the type of language you use in your home. But I think a good example, and Patty talks about this in Safely Ever After, which I really like, is like uncomfortable touch might be being held too tightly, right? Mm -hmm. If you go to give somebody a hug and they squeeze you too tight or hold you too long, you kind of know what that feels like, right? I think we've all probably been there in some form where a touch has been uncomfortable in that way. We're being tickled too hard. (laughs) I think a lot of us have been there, and I know I do this with my kid, and my kid will do it back with me, but like tickling, and then suddenly you don't want to be tickled anymore. So if somebody kept tickling you, even though you said no or stop or I don't want to do this anymore, that's uncomfortable touch. Another thing that we think about, and I know this is really popular, particularly this year because of the Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. I'm sure many parents, if they're online, had, you know, read this article that the Girl Scouts put out around girls, and this goes for any gender, boys, any, you know, identified gender, shouldn't feel forced to hug or kiss family during the holidays, right? And this goes all the time with feeling forced to give somebody a hug or a kiss. And this was, I mean, I don't know about you, Melissa, but I remember when I was younger, it was like you went to the holidays, you saw a family member Mm -hmm. and it would go hug grandma or grandpa. Right. And you didn't want to hug them. You felt like you had to, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of sending the message to our kids that their body isn't really their own in all circumstances. Right. And that they don't have the autonomy to say, I don't want someone to touch me right now. I'm just not comfortable with that. And I think we, you know, parents for a long time were doing that because they didn't want to hurt a family member's feelings or they didn't want it to look like their kid was being bratty or rude. But in all actuality, adults should be figuring out their emotions, right? So I expect that if my son goes to my mother's house or my father's house and they ask for a hug and he doesn't want to, I expect that my parents understand that he just doesn't want to give a hug right now. Maybe he wants to give a high five. Maybe he wants to do a fist bump. Maybe he wants to wave. Those are all appropriate other options. And so we want our kids to know that whether they're in a situation with a tricky person 
or they're in a situation with a grandparent who just loves them very much and wants a hug, that they have that autonomy Mm. to turn it down when they're not comfortable. Their body is their own. Right. And and that's a real shift for a lot of us, um, Mm -hmm. like you said, uh, where there may have been more of an emphasis on the power dynamics of adults versus children. Mm-hmm. And so some some folks may feel uh, uncomfortable or at least in, in how how can I give my child that much power versus this is this is what you do because my mom said this is what I have to do. This is what you know, yeah. but instead we're saying no, they are their own individual and we want them to have an awareness of, you know, what feels good to them, what doesn't feel good to them, to prepare them, right? To prepare them for healthy adulthoods. So, yep. yeah, this this is, I think, a great shift for our, you know, our culture in general. Absolutely. And I found with most kids, you know, my own and children that I've worked with, that choice can always be great, right? It, mm-hmm. like, reduces a power struggle, which always happens with a three-year-old and definitely (laughs) older kids as well. But when you give a choice to a child and they feel like they have the ability to make it for their own, it can really diffuse a situation. And so I think, like I said, if if I go to a family member's and the family member asks for a hug and my son says, no, I don't want to do a hug, then we think of alternatives that are more comfortable that they might like to do. And maybe my son will say, no, I don't want to do a high five or a fist bump. And he runs away and like go gets his toy, you know, goes and gets his toys. That's fine. But we have that opportunity that sometimes it's like, okay, cool. Do you want to give him a high five? Yeah. Awesome. All right. And you know, there's that engagement and that interaction and it's comfortable and it was kind of on his own terms. I think that that's what's really, really important. We want to empower our kids to feel like they have the say over their body, because as you said, you know, our kids are going to be sexual people Mm -hmm. and there may be a time when they're with someone and may feel pressure. And the last thing we want is for them to kind of have this idea in their mind that there are situations in which they don't want to do something, but should to make someone else feel happy. Right. right? And, or, or should to, to provide somebody else with pleasure. And that's where we don't want to go with this. So I think for parents that kind of struggle for that as well, it can be helpful to look bigger picture and say, okay, yeah, I don't want my son or daughter to ever be in a relationship in which they feel like they have to do something that makes them really uncomfortable for the sake of somebody else's feelings because that other person can't manage or regulate their own feelings and emotions on their own. Right. And and we're seeing, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, things playing out, you know, currently in the climate in terms of the Me Too movement. You know, many folks, victims in those scenarios are of, you know, these generations who have been, again, raised to without that sense of, of, of uh, power of themselves yeah. and their own body and, and their, own vo- <coughs> their own voice in the equation. So I think we, we can move you know, through, through again, what you're highlighting here, we can move our next generation, you know, into that place of empowerment and hopefully lessen, you know, those kinds of outcomes because they feel, they know their voice and they also know when something starts to be unsafe. So on that note, so how can we help them understand what their gut, what gut means and what their gut feelings are like? Yeah. So, you know, I always tell kids that I work with and my son to the extent that he can kind of understand it now is that when we're in uncomfortable or bad situations, oftentimes we have 
a gut feeling. And I think that's probably, you know, common language or terminology to most people, right? Mm -hmm. You have a gut feeling, you feel queasy, uncomfortable, maybe you feel a little sick. And I always tell kids to respond to that, right? To pay attention to that. We want to pay attention to our body. And that's not just when it comes to unsafe touch, but that's when it comes to anxiety, depression, you know, things like that when we're not feeling well. Paying attention to ourselves is really, really important. And this is no different. So if you're in a situation where your stomach feels kind of funny and something doesn't feel right, chances are it's not right, right? Right. Because we as people are really intuitive, whether we realize it or not. And the last thing we want to do is ignore our body's cues and signs that something's not going right. So if you start to feel queasy in a situation, go to a safe adult, go to someone you trust, go to someone you know, a teacher, your parents, a friend, and let them know that you need help, that something doesn't feel right. And keep encouraging that with your kids. Have a, have a discussion about this, about how to pay attention to your body and how important that is. I think that that's, that's definitely huge. And I think it's also something that we can all relate to. Our gut in general is an amazing thing mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> can like, it, it does so much. Yes. We need to capitalize on that. Right. If and when scenarios move, you know, move into the direction, you know, with, with someone that are unsafe, mm-hmm. how can we talk with them about the appropriateness of secrets? Yep. So there are different approaches to secrets. Now, Patty Fitzgerald has a very, I think, straightforward approach to this by saying that there's no such thing as secrets. No secrets, no secrets are kept. We talk about everything, that sort of thing. Which I think you can go that direction if you want. You can encourage kids not to keep secrets. There's no secrets in the house, all of that. I do think that you know, that may not be as realistic. Kids keep secrets all the time, right? They tell each other stuff and and it's usually harmless. And so I like to think of it as good secrets or bad secrets. And there's actually this really great book and I'll give you the name of it, Melissa, so that your listeners and followers can look into this if they like. My son got it recently for the holidays and I think it's called I My Kept Secret. It's something, but I'll give you the name. And he loves it. He's three and he loves it. And he understands it to a degree. But it's all about what good secrets are and what bad secrets are. Mm -hmm. So they break it down beautifully around what's a good secret. Well, a good secret is something that is going to make everybody happy. It's not going to make anybody feel bad. So that might be keeping a surprise party secret, right? Like Mm, your friend's having a surprise birthday party. You don't want to tell them and ruin it for them. You're going to wait and keep that secret. And what's going to happen? Well, that person's going to have a party, so that's going to feel great. And you don't feel bad about keeping it. Right. When it comes to bad secrets, bad secrets are something that hurts somebody else, hurts you, that someone does by, like, threatening you and making you feel bad. So those are the secrets that we want to tell somebody we trust, right? Those are the ones that shouldn't be kept. They're not good. No, you know, like, it's nothing good is going to come from that. And my son loves this. He thinks this is so cool. He'll like, tell me good secrets. He'll make up a secret when we're reading. Um, (laughs) It's really fun. And it's kind of starts this idea about what secrets, you know, what are okay and what, what aren't. I think also what we say to my son, and this is kind of a combination of both how Patty responds with safety ever after and how this responds is that a secret's still a secret if you tell your parents. At a young age, he understands this around like 
if somebody, because sometimes, you know, if, if we're going to get a little more specific, someone may say, you know, keep the secret or I'm going to hurt someone, right? right? right. Don't tell anybody or something bad's going to happen. Well, technically you're not breaking the secret because it's still a secret if you tell mom mm-hmm. or it's still a secret if you tell dad or grandma or auntie or I like whoever that. I like that. the caregiver is. And so we encourage that with our son too, that you can tell secrets to, you know, to us and it's still technically a secret. So no rule is being broken. And so I think that that's really important um, to have this discussion about secrets and what they mean and what's okay to, to be kept quiet and what isn't. So definitely it sounds like the, the, the theme here is that having the conversations and the preparatory you know, uh, dialogues with them early is what can help frame and, and plant those seeds. And, and then as they continue to grow and they develop, the conversations can go deeper, the scenarios can change. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about starting to have this discussion. Even if, even if you're listening to this right now and you don't have a three-year-old, you have a 12-year-old or 13-year-old, mm-hmm. it's never too late to start having these discussions with your kids, right. to have open dialogue about it, to look things up together in books or online and to talk about it, have some real discussions and be, you know, open-minded, be validating and listen. That's so important. Mm. I think, you know, a big chunk of being a parent that time is really just allowing yourself to listen to your kids and their experiences and validate what they're going through and being a safe person that they feel like they can talk to if, if something happens that we hope wouldn't happen. But if it does, to be able to be that person that they can go to to talk about it. Right. And on that note, so if a parent finds themselves in a scenario where either there's been an outcry or their gut is telling them that something may uh, something unsafe may have happened to their child, what resources should they consider as, you know, first as their go-to because those are very very emotional and difficult moments. Oftentimes, as you know, working in sex therapy and working with children, if there is a situation in which a parent isn't sure about what's going on and they have some questions, mm-hmm. you can look to a local therapist, you can look to a local mental health um, center, you can talk to your doctor and, and have, you know, your pediatrician right. and have a discussion about some of the things that you're seeing that you're concerned about and what the next best, best steps are. They can refer you out as well. And then obviously if something happens in which you know for sure mm-hmm. there was a situation relating to your children that was unsafe, you can also talk to the pediatrician, you can call the police, mm-hmm. um, you can call your local, um, here in Massachusetts where I'm based in Greater Boston, we have what's called the Department of Children and Families, but that could be different names in yeah. different states. You can contact them and run information by them. And so there are a lot of places you can go for support. Yes, absolutely. Those are those are all great options. And also the element of, of needing to believe them, right? Yes, Which is hard. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've worked with many people as adults who have come in and said, talked about how damaging it was mm. to have expressed to a trusted adult that didn't believe them or that was, they were likely dealing with their own issues and were having difficulty reconciling um, that something had had to happen to their kids. But I think it's really important to remember that, you know, we do our absolute best as Mm -hmm, parents. mm -hmm. Sometimes things happen 
even when we try our best to keep our kids as safe as possible. But listen to your kids, believe them, and reach out for support. You know, if you think something's happened to your child and you're doing everything for them, make sure you're taking care of yourself, whether that be talking to a trusted friend or family member, reaching out to a therapist. No, I I love that you bring that up because, again, this is – this is where the silence can happen or the the uh, trepidation in terms of approaching these topics because there's that fear of of all that can come with addressing these topics or even approaching them or guiding conversations or planting seeds it's it can feel overwhelming it can you know some people fear well this can open up you know a door that i'm not really feeling prepared emotionally you know to enter but I think like with all sexual health conversations, you know, once we step over that threshold, and like you said, listening is a huge piece to it. So really, a lot of times we're not the ones doing all the talking, you know, we're doing a lot more listening. And that allows us to know where to go with the conversations and to pick up on the context clues and nonverbal cues that our children give us. So yeah, it, it ends up being a lot easier than we fear so we definitely want parents, right, to to step into these discussions and thinking of it as preparation. I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I think for, especially for parents with younger children, I highly recommend, and I say this to all of the parents that I work with, um, and I, I do this with my, I have this old approach with my son, is I always use anatomically correct words mm. for body parts. Yes. And I think that that's really important when it comes to kids being able to verbalize if something's happened. Not only because I think that we should, as a, as a sex educator and therapist, I think that there's yeah. nothing wrong with saying vulva or penis or anything else. Yeah. So that's my own, you know, part of, I think, trying my best to be as sex positive as possible. Yeah. But I think also, if something were to happen, we want our kids to be able to have the right words and tools to be able to t- tell us, mm-hmm. to be able to tell other adults, to be able to tell police or social workers or whomever if it ever got to that point what was going on and so I think that that's really really important so I just wanted to to add that in absolutely Uh, great yeah great point so we are rounding this out this has been extremely informative and I will be sure that we include some links to some resources that you've discussed and you know some additional ones that are out there that parents can definitely benefit from to connect on these topics deeper. I want to ask you what does sex positivity mean to you and how does it show up in your life? So I would say sex positivity means not being afraid or working my best, you know, trying my hardest mm-hmm. not to be afraid to have conversations around sex and sexuality with the people that I care about, with my kids, with the people that I work with. I think because we can be so uncomfortable and there's so much shame in our society around sex and sexuality that we don't have the conversations that are necessary. And so I think being really open to that, listening to other people and having an open mind, Mm. I think that that's huge when it comes to being sex positive. And so I do my best, you know, we all, you know, we try our hardest. We've all been, you know, I I think if you were brought up in the United States, particularly, you probably know that we 
don't always have the greatest sex education. There's a lot of taboos around certain things, a lot of shame, a lot of misinformation and confusion. And so doing your best to try and have these hard discussions and and to listen and be open-minded around other people, I think is a big part of sex positivity for me. I love that. And so you are certainly creating a footprint and an opportunity for a lot of other folks to connect with sexual health and sex positivity through the work that you're doing. Looking at 2018, what projects do you have coming up? So I have a new shop that has popped up. Awesome. Um, Yeah, so for sex positive, and I joke about like a little bit of snark and sarcasm. I love that. Uh, (laughs) For kids, teens, adults, so this is shirts and sweatshirts and pillows and mugs and all that sort of stuff that you can find if you follow me at sec- on Sex Stuff with Kristen on Instagram. I have a link there. I will continue to do my educational vlogs on YouTube, which is also under Sex Stuff with Kristen. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to keep blogging. Um, I like to try and blog once a week about topics that I think a lot of people may have misinformation about or don't really understand them at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It gives an opportunity for my readers to learn something new, decrease stigma and shame around sex and sexuality. And so, yeah, I'm going to, to be doing that. So if you are so inclined, feel free to follow me on Sex Stuff with Kristen. I also have... Make sure you follow her. Not if you're so inclined, you need to follow (laughs) Sex Stuff with Kristen, okay? (laughs) Thank you. Listen to Melissa. Um, I also have Sex Positive Parenting, which is a smaller kind of Instagram. It doesn't have as many followers, but I try and post things that I feel like are relevant to parents on that. And then, like I said, Sex Stuff with Kristen on YouTube. And then I have my website, KristenHambridgeLICSW.com, where you can find lots of information. And if you are in the greater Boston area and you are looking for a sex therapist or consultant, you can also go to that web, you know, my webpage and find a way to contact me and I would be happy to chat with you and see if I can help. Awesome. And so what about for folks that are not fortunate enough to be close to you in proximity? Do you do anything virtually in terms of coaching or, um, you know, therapy or anything like that? Because you're a wealth wealth of knowledge. Yeah, no, thank you. I do do coaching. Um, I can do that via phone, Skype, or email. So if you do live outside of the area in which you cannot come to see me at my office, I don't do therapy via Skype or phone. Okay. Um, but I do do consultations. So that can look like 45 minutes to an hour. If you have a specific question or issue that you need help with or guidance around, I can absolutely help you with that. So you can find that on my webpage as well in the area you see consultation, you can fill out a form. And then if you are in this area and you're looking for a sex therapist, I have a private practice in Greater Boston. So you can go over to the tab that says sex therapy and learn more about that. Yeah, excellent. that's what I do. That's what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, this has been a, a really rich discussion. And I am excited that, you know, as, as we're launching this, that we are able to bring this type of content and, you know, really get families engaged and comfortable, even when it may feel 
uncomfortable. And so this information that you've shared today is going to really help people to get to that place. So thank you so much for your time and your talent and your passion for this work. And like I said, it is your homework listeners to make sure that you connect with and follow Sex Stuff with Kristen. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I hope to see you all around my uh, social media. Awesome liked this episode and podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or Google Play so more people can find us. And you can always visit us on our website at sexpositivefamilies.com. There you can shop sex positive swag in our online store, connect with us across our social media platforms, join our Facebook community, and learn more resources to help support sexual health in your family. Until next time, I'm Melissa Carnegie. Thank you for supporting content that strengthens sexual health talks in families.